Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Coding with Christine Hall. I am so excited to be back with you today. Um, we were off for the entire month of September, my birthday month, yes. And um, we are we're having we have a new office. I'm sure you've heard the news. We have a new office and it's being built out. And we had an original move-in date at the end of September. So I thought, this is awesome, right? Um, we took a little break and that would work out perfectly. But uh, if you've ever worked with contractors before, God love them, um, things don't always end up on the date that you're expecting them to. And so here I am coming to you live from my kitchen table. Um, yeah, we're not ready yet to move into our new office, but you know, I couldn't be away from you that long. So here we are. And we've had a lot of wonderful updates that happened during the month of September. And one of those being that we were, we um, had our ICD-10 guideline update and coding update. And it went into effect last Friday on the 1st. So hopefully this is not really the first time you're hearing about these codes, but if it is, then I'm, I'm glad to be the one sharing it with you. A couple of things. First of all, we have a limited amount of time together. So there's no way that I could cover absolutely everything. I did a couple of presentations for some AAPC chapters recently, and my presentation on the updates was two hours long. Now, some of that could be because Christine likes to talk, and some of that could be because we had some changes. Not as many changes as we had last year, not even a fraction really of what we had last year. It's, it was super, super easy on us this year. But, you know, remember last year, we had some interim um, updates that came throughout the year from CDC. They were adding more COVID codes and COVID-related codes and how to report things for COVID. Uh, we even had an update that came out in the end of December that was effective January 1. I put together a little something Oops, what did I just do? Okay, here we go. I put together a little something that I want to share with you guys today. Um, it has to do with, I put a little presentation together so I could kind of stay on track and give you something visual to work with. I'm a very visual person. I like to print things out, look at it, read it. So we're going to do that uh, today. I'm going to show you some of those changes that I was talking about. Um, and, and before we really get through it, you have to understand my passion for ICD-10 started years ago when I actually got in trouble. So back in 2007 or 2008, and I think I might have shared this with you guys in the past, um, I, I was working for a geriatric facility and uh, got a letter in the mail around November of 2007, 2008 from CMS. And CMS said, Christine, you sent us 150 claims for a wrong diagnosis code. The code for constipation had gone from a four-digit code to a five-digit code, and I had submitted 150 claims with the old code. Now, back then, our EMRs didn't always update automatically. Sometimes we had to go into the EMR and add codes. Um, nowadays, I think most of our cloud-based EMRs, they do, do automatic updates, which is really a blessing. But back then in the day, 
um, we had to update them. And I hadn't done that because I really felt like there was probably no changes that were for my specialty. You know, the, the guidelines, they're just such a pain to read. And, you know, it doesn't really apply to me. Well, guess what, guys? There's always something that applies to you, especially from a coder's perspective. There's always something that does apply. So uh, bear with me. I'm going to share some of those things. And you try to find that one little bit of information that applies to you today that you can bring into the practice. So this first slide shows you those codes that were given to us in late December 2020. They were added um, for an effective date of 2021. And so they're not even in your coding books. So all of you, if you go to your coding books and you look for any of these codes, they're not going to be there. And they actually supersede the guidance that had come out earlier in the year, the interim guidance on how to use specific codes relating to COVID-19. So again, where we may have had just a um, uh, an encounter for screening of other type of um, infectious virus or other influenza, we now have a very specific encounter for screening COVID-19. So be aware of those little changes that came out uh, that were in that interim period there. The, the next thing I want to talk to you about is the changes that we actually had. And like I said, there's a significant reduction in changes than we saw the year before or even the year before that. So there are 159 additions, and these additions are new or expanded codes. Um, 32 deletions, these are codes that are either retired or they're not valid anymore because they, they had an upgrade to them. And I'll tell you that the majority of the deletions came in with our drug poisoning, um, overdosing and underdosing. So we'll have a, we'll, I'll show you those here in a, just a few minutes. Uh, 20 revisions, maybe that's an update to the description of the diagnosis code. Uh, sometimes it's a minor change to the diagnosis code. Sometimes it is an uh, instructional change that happens in the tabular section. To, so a total of diagnosis codes that we have are 95,524. Think about even when ICD-10 first came to us in 2015, there were only about 70,000 codes. So we've really expanded out the number of codes that we can use to, to support specificity quite a bit. Now, these ICD-10 guideline changes, you, they can be found in your coding clinic, but you can also upload them from the CDC. CDC always has the, the first set of guidelines that come out and the changes, and then CMS will also have those available from their website. But I always go to CDC as my go-to person for all of my ICD-10 coding. And what you'll notice if you do look at the guidelines, and I hope you do because I think we just don't spend enough time, um, at least annually, you should be pulling up a, a good coffee and a blanket and sit down and read these guidelines and just remind yourself of, of what we can and can't do as coders or sequencing or any of the things that the guidelines include. Anyway, so if you are reading the coding clinic or you're reading the new guidelines, the changes appear in bold text. Now, not the actual 
uh, headers. The headers for each section are bold. So th those, of course, are not new. But the content within, the paragraph within the guideline that you see bold, that's new information. Um, there uh, is some information that was moved within the guidelines because we have some new codes. And so when we do move things around in the guidelines, maybe to another section that's more appropriate, you'll see those underlined. And then, of course, anything that's been removed from the guidelines is stricken out. So again, here's a, a quick link there. There's also a link at the bottom of your screen that you can go to and get the new um, changes that were made to ICD-10. And for there are many different sections in the guidelines. You have your section A, which are your coding conventions and pretty much how to use your ICD-10 book. And then section B, really talks about the general coding guidelines. Now, everything that you see in Section B pertains to all the codes in ICD-10. Now, imagine if they added these general guidelines to each and every code. We would all have to have industrial forklifts in order to move our ICD-10 books from our desk to another location, right? They would be so massive and huge, not something we can use. So these guidelines are guidelines that are pervasive over all of the different ICD-10 codes. And the first thing that I want to share with you is that we, you know, we always strive to code every code to its highest level. Um, but now as coders, we have a new clarification that's been added. It includes the highest level of specificity. Oh my goodness, did you hear that? I tripped on it. It took me years to master that word. <clears throat> Let's try this again. So to the highest level of specificity that's documented in the medical record, this means that we're not just limited to the individual encounter. We are able to look at anything else that has been incorporated into the medical record to help us select the highest level of specificity on a code. So maybe that means that we need a, a secondary code. Maybe it means that we need uh, to know about the initial encounter versus a subsequent encounter. We can look at the entire record. Um, and also, they made an update to let you know that the codes that should be reported also include those codes in the new Chapter 22, Codes for Special Purposes. And those are our COVID and our vaping codes. So they expanded that out. Um, I changed the, I made the changes in red. You'll notice they pop out at you a little bit easier than if I had just bolded them. So I wanted you to see what was changed. And sometimes it is just a word or two that is needed for specificity, like in the beginning of this guideline and the changes there. Um, a few years ago, this guideline was added to ICD-10. All that, that black lettering that you see is existing. Um, and to the guidelines there. But we needed some expanded explanation as to the definition of clinician, right? One person's nurse practitioner is another person's medical assistant. So again, I, I they needed some specificity there. And ICD-10, it never fails. So they're letting us know that a clinician or an, uh, other than the patient's provider, 
is referred to as healthcare professionals that are permitted by either regulatory or accreditation requirements, or maybe even a hospital's internal policy that they're allowed to document in the patient's medical record. So if someone is allowed to document in the medical record, again, either by regulatory or accreditation, you know, maybe uh, the, the medical assistant, our providers allow them to document in the chart. A PCT is allowed to document those vital measurements in the chart. So they're expanding out who can document in the chart. And, and as coders, right, if we need that information, we can look at that if we need specificity. If we're working on a, a BMI diagnosis or something like that, we can go and look at those entries that were made by uh, approved permitted persons in the medical record. And those specific things that we can pull from those other clinicians that were documented in this change in this guideline, um, that information could be the BMI information. So again, height, weight, BMI, um, the depth of a non-pressure or a pressure ulcer that was recorded the coma scale that was recorded, um, a stroke scale that was recorded, social determinants of health. I, I'm going to have another um, vlog for you just on social determinants of health. I'm so excited that they added these uh, last year or did for this year for uh, evaluation and management. I feel like we overlook sometimes people's social situations on how it's going to react or how it's going to affect the risk of the patient. Anyway, um, we can also pull laterality. So like that chart that I had the other day, uh, the provider did a, a total knee replacement, unspecified knee. Okay, so now we can pull the laterality from anywhere that is documented within the medical record or a blood alcohol level if we need to from anywhere in the medical record. The guideline continues to include a, a guidance there for blood alcohol when it's required to support a, a diagnosis from the F10 category. Um, also letting us know within this guideline that we should use this guideline to pull those social determinants of health as secondary diagnosis. So again, it states here that the BMI, the coma scale, the stroke scale, the blood alcohol levels, the social determinants of health, those should be secondary diagnosis. So that's what I love about the guidelines. They really do help us out. Um, this is perhaps one of the best additions to ICD-10 guidelines. You see me get all excited, guys? Yeah. Um, I, I've seen this in this guideline. This updates stresses this. Excuse me. I, I have my words confused this morning. I only had one cup of coffee this morning, so let's not judge, guys. Uh, this guideline, it stresses the relationship between the providers and the coders. As a coder, I am so thrilled of this new guideline there. Um, consistent documentation cannot be overemphasized. They're letting us know that without such documentation, accurate coding could not be achieved and that we should be looking at the entire medical record. So for example, if we have a patient, uh, and we should also be looking for any of that conflicting information, right? Has anybody ever read a chart and your patient uh, in the review of systems, it says depression, uh, patient denies. Physical exam, no signs of depression. Um, they have a prescription, no prescriptions for depression. 
or, or any type of mental health disorders. There's no prescriptions on file. There's no notes from any therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist in the record. Um, and the, the PHQ-9 has a score of zero. And then you look down at the assessment and plan, and the patient has a diagnosis of major depression reoccurrent severe. What? So again, uh, I do this all the time. It's nice to know that there is a guideline there that states that if there is a conflict in the medical record documentation, um, either from different clinicians or even from the attending provider, that we should query it for a clarification. So as coders, we're being given that encouragement to communicate with the providers. I know you're going to say, Christine, come on, you know how hard that is. I do know how hard that is. However, don't forget that providers are also getting educated on these guideline updates. They know that they need to work with their coders in order to find these more specific codes. And when we have new guidelines, this is a great opportunity for you to pull your providers aside and say, hey, we have new guidelines here that say that we need to work together. Um, I'm able to pull some things from the medical record, so maybe my queries to you might go down. However, I need to be able to reach out to you when I see something that is a little wonky. Is that a technical term, wonky? Mm, maybe. Anyway, um, only reporting Z codes that are relevant to the patient's encounter today. So I, I teach for the AAPC. I teach the CPC um, course for AAPC. And one of the things that a lot of my students misunderstand in the very beginning of the course is just because there's a code for it doesn't always mean it's appropriate to add that code. We're only looking at those codes that are relevant to the encounter today. So I was really happy to see this. Um, the second part of this guideline that's not new is one that I, I can't pass over. We have to talk about it. There are certain codes that are not allowed to be primary codes or first listed codes, that they're only able to live in a secondary spot. So some of those codes could be your BMI. BMI can never be a primary diagnosis. That's not why somebody goes to the doctor. That's data that we find out while we're at the doctors, right? They weigh us and they check our height and they give us a BMI. It's not a reason for the encounter. It is something subsequent that happens during the encounter. So we've got these great guidelines. Now we go into the next section and that next section is chapter specific. Um, and don't worry guys, I'm trying real hard to be mindful of your time, but we might run over a few minutes just because I wanna get all of this in for you. Okay, um, so chapter specific guidelines. I liked this one. So in our very first chapter that we, we come to there, infectious diseases, or actually this is chapter two, infectious diseases, um, we have some new guidance for HIV. Remember, we've always been on the fence. Is it is it Z21 or is it B20? Um, you know, maybe you're not familiar with some of the HIV-related conditions that would flip that switch from asymptomatic Z21 to a symptomatic B20. Um, I understand that's always very difficult. I, my advice is that you read that guideline again, leave that little breadcrumb in your mind of when we should and shouldn't. Uh, maybe you can Google some of those aid-related conditions, Carposi sarcoma, and you can add it to your guidelines in your ICD-10 book. So the next time you look up that guideline, you're not having to 
you know, jump into your mind machine and figure out what those conditions are. It's just listed for you. I find that to be a lot easier, to be honest with you. Uh, It's easier to see it than it is to have to remember it sometimes. Anyway, this new guideline really pertains to the advancements in antiretroviral medication. I have a good friend of mine who's had HIV for probably the last 20 years. Um, And he is on an antiretroviral medication. Last time he had his labs done, they were not able to detect any of the HIV virus on his blood test. Not that he's cured, because we unfortunately don't have a cure just yet. But his viral load was so low because of the antiretrovirals that it wasn't even registering. So we have some guidelines there. When a patient is taking an antiretroviral medication for HIV treatment, then we should be reporting that HIV with the B20 code. We should also report the Z79.899 to identify that there's a long-term use of drug therapy for this patient. So again, we're not getting rid of the Z21. That one's still there for asymptomatic. But if you have a certain scenario where a patient's being treated with antiretroviral medication, we should report that B20. And I know that's a question that a lot of infectious disease coders have had out there is, you know, their viral load is not even showing at this point. So how do we report all of this? There you go. We have a new guideline. This update is a precursor uh, from a new ICD-10 for a new ICD-10 code for you guys. And so we're going to kind of glaze over this. But um, I do want to let you know that the new January 2021 code Z86.16, that should only be used for healed, no residual COVID-19 infection. So you had COVID-19 everything is resolved. You got your taste back, your smell back, you're feeling amazing, right? You're COVID negative. Um, That's when we're going to use that Z86.16. However, if the patient has, oops, I went too far. I have uh, fun fingers today. Um, If the patient does have any residual signs and symptoms from that COVID infection, we have a new code. Let me switch now. Ah, there we go. We have a new code to represent post-COVID-19 conditions. So what I've heard is there are a lot of patients who haven't gotten their taste back, that they lost their taste with COVID, and it just took a long time to get that taste back. Um, That would be devastating. I love food. Anyway, um, so we had to have a code that said, yeah, they're, they're done with COVID, but they're not history of COVID. Where's that in between COVID where there's still some lingering signs and symptoms of COVID? And so we have a new code U09.9, post-COVID-19 condition unspecified. And we should always report what is that residual condition first. So what is the manifestation that still is in effect? We should report that um, loss of taste, right? If the patient has loss of taste there. Uh, The other thing I'm going to tell you that that we have another scenario that's possible. So maybe you have a patient who had COVID-19, lost their taste, never got the taste back. So sad. But then they got the Delta variant of COVID. So they're reinfected with COVID. Christine, how do we report this? There's so many changes that are happening with COVID that it's impossible to keep up with. Well, that's okay, because this guideline tells us under that circumstance, you would report the new COVID, then you would report the manifestation of the post-COVID that is still in effect, 
and a code for post-COVID. So that really describes that patient who had COVID, not COVID anymore, still didn't get their taste back, and now they have the Delta variant. So uh, different scenarios there. Everything is in the guidelines, guys. You just got to take a look at it. Um, when prescription drugs are used to manage type 2 diabetes, right, whether it's a primary type 2 diabetes or a secondary type 2 diabetes, um, we should list all of the associated Z79 codes for long-term use of insulin, long-term use of oral hypoglycemic drugs, or long-term use of the new anti-diabetic drugs like Trulicity and Ozembic. And so I kind of merged these two updates to the guidelines because they said the same thing, whether it was for primary diabetes type 2 or secondary diabetes type 2. Again, if the patient is taking uh, metformin, we should report the Z79.84. Perhaps they use insulin also, Z79.4. Maybe they're on a sliding scale. Um, and then they're also doing that Trulicity or Ozembic, or there's a few other ones out there that we should be reporting that Z79.899 to report that we're using that. So um, there was some different guidelines in the past. This is a lot clearer. We should report all that apply, right? So. Um, another is this new guideline for substance use, abuse, and dependency when the substance use, uh, when we have a substance use disorder. And the point of this new guideline is really to, to remind coders that the medical condition, for example, um, alcohol dependency that is due, excuse me, uh, uh, alcoholic pancreatitis that is due to alcoholic dependency, um, we should be reporting that medical condition first. That's really the reason that they're being treated. Um, and, and again, enough people must have been doing it wrong for there to be a new guideline in place, but I love guidelines. I love orders. And so they're advising us that those medical conditions should be reported first. So again, uh, alcoholic pancreatitis due to an alcohol dependence, we should report the K85.2. And uh, I'm sure that there's some, an additional fifth or sixth digit that needs to be added to that, um, as well as a code from the F10.2 to report the alcohol dependence. So just be careful that you're not adding just the alcohol dependence with another alcohol-induced disorder, that F10.288, that you really are reporting that medical condition first that's related to alcohol, and then the appropriate F10. Also, when you do have a condition from F10, you should report the corresponding blood alcohol level um, if we know it, right? So it doesn't matter where it comes from in the medical record. Uh, even if the attending physician doesn't report it, we can pull that information from anywhere within the medical record if we know it. Again, of course, if you're seeing a patient in the office, you probably don't have access to it. However, if you're seeing a patient in the ED or you're consulting maybe in an observation status, um, you might have access to that blood alcohol. And we should be reporting that when it is relevant to the encounter. And again, now we can pull it from anywhere in the medical record. So uh, anywhere that it is documented what that blood alcohol level is, remember, we still can't interpret labs. We're good guys, but we're not that good. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's reported by another clinician what that blood alcohol interpretation is, then we can use it from that other location in the medical record. 
Um, this is another guideline that I thought was just amazing, right? Um, and this reminds us as coders that we should always code the post-op uh, diagnosis, not the pre-op diagnosis. And, and so maybe some of you new coders might need that reminding. It's the post-op diagnosis. And when it comes to staging pressure ulcers, we need to be coding the post-debridement stage and not the pre-debridement stage. So well, there are some guidelines there. And I want to thank AAPC for this really easy reference picture that I borrowed from them to show you those different stages there. Um, history. So the reason for the encounter. So that could be maybe that the patient is coming in for a screening, counseling. Maybe they're just coming in for their annual visit. There's no medical reason for this encounter. Doesn't mean that we're not going to be reviewing some of their chronic conditions that are stable, but from a uh, perspe coding perspective, maybe this is not an evaluation and management. Maybe this is a preventive service, or maybe this is a service for something else other than evaluation and management. We should report the appropriate history code there. Um, so they're just reminding us there that we should in report those. And then after the, the screening code or those zoo codes, Z00 codes, then we should add any appropriate personal or family history. Uh, we Most of us don't necessarily present to the office for a uh, family history that, that we want reviewed, although some do, but it would also be for a screening or counseling or something related to that family history. So think about that, guys. Um, another thing, we have a new code out there for an encounter for immunization safety counseling, and it should not be confused with the other code that we have for encounter for health counseling related to travel and say health risks. Um, the new code Z71.85 is really been designed for those counselings that we're doing with patients, maybe for COVID, right? Um, and not talking about the general side effects of COVID or even the general side effects of an immunization. We're talking about specific counseling of how that immunization might affect the patient with their specific comorbidities, right? What could be expected if I get the COVID vaccine, but I also have X, Y, and Z comorbidities that I need to consider me personally, not the general warnings for the vaccine. So if we're having that type of a counseling session, we should be reporting the Z71.85. There are also uh, corresponding codes for when the administration, that vaccine is given and for when the vaccine is denied, right? Sometimes patients say, well, that's just too much. I, I think I'm going to pass on this or I'm going to put a pin in it. I'll re revisit it in a, at another time. So they've given us some good guideline there. Uh, let me go through some of these codes specifically. And uh, I have to, to also reach out to you and tell you, please also look at the addendums that have been added. Um, the addendums add any type of verbiage or guidance in the tabular section. So your excludes one. These two codes should not be reported together. A patient is unlikely to have a congenital defect and an acquired defect at the same time. And so it wouldn't be appropriate to report those excludes one. Excludes twos, those are when we don't have a combination code for those two conditions if the patient has them together. And so because we don't have a combination code, 
when a patient has those two reported conditions, you should report both of those codes. Don't know why they call it excludes one, excludes two, because clearly the definition is uh, a little broader than just what we would assume. But that's above my pay grade, folks. I wanted just to let you know that you can get just the addendum, again, that's listed there on your slide. We're going to add it to the YouTube uh, page so that you can access that information as well. So here's a pretty big list of the changes that were made. We're not going to go over all of those changes again because I'm already on your time, right, more than you had expected. So we're just going to roll through here pretty quickly um, and talk about some of the highlight conditions that, that have been updated. So again, if it, your specialty is listed here with a high number, then pay attention. If those of you have specialties like eyes and ears, well, you didn't get any changes this year. So congratulations, you just have to read the guidelines. We had a change to our major depression. So um, again, this is a Christine theory. If I had to go into my crystal ball, I would tell you that when we made the change from ICD-9 to ICD-10, ICD-9 had a very unspecified code to report depression. And then when we went over to ICD-10, that very generic code disappeared and everything became major depression. And a lot of providers felt uncomfortable with the leap from depression to major depression in reporting that code, but it was all that we had, right? So we did the best we could, single, reoccurrent, mild, moderate, severe, um, that happened. And so uh, enough people said, hey, we really need our depression NOS code back. And so when depression NOS or depressive disorder or depression itself unspecified as major depression or not, then we should reuse the code F. 32.a, F32.a. We didn't get rid of the major depressive disorders, single episodes, unspecified. All those F32.0 through F32.9 still exist, but we have an additional code that should be used when just depression, depression NOS, depression, depressive disorder, when that is reported by the provider, we should be using the F32.a code. Also, there's another code that was added for serviogenic headaches, and these are headaches that are related to spinal conditions, to the cervical spine condition. And so there's an additional note here with this new code that says uh, we should also code any cervical spine conditions if they're known, right? So this type of headache... Uh, by the way, I'm a firm believer that if a new code comes out and I don't know what it is, like a plastic uh, toxo plus most something, I don't know. I will Google it and I will look at it and I will get the information. And then I'll also look at those signs and symptoms because, you know, we have a very strong guideline about reporting signs and symptoms with a definitive diagnosis. So a couple of things. What is the new diagnosis? What is that condition? And what are their signs and symptoms? So again, this is a secondary type of headache and it re re it's a result of referred pain from uh, the, the neck. A couple of other ones I wanted to talk to you, esophageal polyps. There's an excludes one. It should not be reported for uh, benign neoplasms. And then we have esophageal junction polyps and other specified diseases of the esophagus to represent that hemorrhage of the esophagus. 
um, irritant contact dermatitis due to friction or contact with bodily fluids. And it's expanded out to really give us a differential of those body fluids. So saliva, fecal, urine, um, different types of bodily fluids, other. So they tell you what it is, but we don't have a specific code. Also, um, those irritant contact dermatitis result r related to stomas or fistulas, right? And again, then they go through and they, they tell us what those different types of irritants might be to the stoma and fistula. So again, GI, you got a lot of code changes. Um, we also got a change in the description of a set of codes. This has been a revision. We revised our silica syndrome to correctly represent the true condition, Sojourn's syndrome. Uh, silica basically just means that there's dryness of the eyes and the mouth. And so the, the true condition that is actually being treated is called Sojourn's syndrome, not really silica syndrome. So any of you that do report these types of codes often, make sure that you put that little breadcrumb in your mind that silica has now been officially changed to Sojourn's. Low back pain. Low back pain was expanded out so that now we have a fifth digit code that explains unspecified that loin pain, lumbago pain, that low back pain there. Uh, vertebrogenic pain, and that's a, a pain that comes from the end plates of the vertebra. There's also other low back pain. Remember when we see other, we're expected that we would see um, what is that other. It should be documented in the chart there. Uh, acute cough. So we have an expansion of our cough. It was R05 for all these years. And suddenly they said, you know, there's all coughs are not the same. Sometimes we have an acute cough that lasts less than about three weeks, upper respiratory infections. We have subacute coughs. Those are lasting a little bit longer. And then we have our chronic coughs that are persistent. They just stay, those refractory coughs, right? Um, we have cough syncope. So we should document if there was a syncopal episode related to that cough. Uh, other specified cough. So if it, that level of cough is reported, maybe that other is more appropriate. And then unspecified cough, um, that's going to be your R05.9. So keep an eye out for those coughs. Uh, nocturnal polyuria. Again, polyuria is when your body makes more urine than it should, right? Normally we make about three liters and people with polyuria could make up to 15 liters of urine a day. And sometimes, you know, in the middle of the night, I know I have that reoccurring dream that I'm always searching for a restroom in my dream. Um, and then I get up and it's that time of the day. Anyway, um, but we have a new code to report that nocturnal polyuria or other polyuria that maybe doesn't happen always at night. So uh, do make sure that if the patient also is experiencing nocturnal uh, enuresis, that you are reporting that code in addition to the nocturnal poly polyuria. Um, there are some feeding disorder codes that were added. I thought this was really interesting because I raised five picky eaters and I wish that we would have had this code back when my kids were little so I could have my pediatrician uh, let my insurance company know why I spend so much money on food for my kids. Not totally unrelated, just thought I'd make a funny there. Um, but we do have some new codes to describe pediatric feeding disorders, as well as other disorders that could be from the elderly, who, again, um, you know, I, my Nana is 93 years old, and there are things that she just won't eat. 
period. That's not a discussion. She's 93, she wins. So we have those new codes that are there for these feeding difficulties. Um, one of the biggest changes that we saw was changes to cannabis, right? So it used to be cannabis derivatives. So they removed that to make a specification between cannabis and uh, synthetic cannabinoids. Now, I've got the inside scoop. I know someone that works for one of those medical marijuana companies, and he told me that the difference between cannabis and synthetic cannabinoids are cannabis is has that THC, and THC can be used now in so many ways that I don't even understand, to be honest with you. Um, I'm from a different generation where we didn't have all these fancy things. We didn't have vape pens. We didn't have any of that. Um, and we surely did not have synthetic cannabinoids that are called fake weed. Has anybody heard that? Fake weed? I think I saw something on the news about it, but it went over my head. And then suddenly we've got ICD-10 codes for it. So um, we do have specific ICD-10 codes that are specified by either cannabis or cannabis derivatives, could that could be your gummies, it could be your um, cookies, your edibles there, or, or again, there's an amazing way now that cannabis is absorbed. I couldn't even begin to tell you, it's way over my head. Um, we have some codes there to describe the poisoning, either accidental, unintentional, the intentional self-harm, which again, my, my um, guide, that I know from the medical marijuana, I don't have medical marijuana guys, just so you know, but I do know a friend. And he said to me that it would take between 20 and 40,000 joints in a 15 minute period to cause intentional self-harm. I don't know if that's factual. I'm just telling you what I was told. Anyway, um, we have these codes now for cannabis and cannabis derivatives. We also have synthetic cannabinoids, and we have the codes to specify what was the poisoning, the adverse effect, effects, or underdosing of those types of cannabis products there. Um, some other codes were added specifically for social determinants of health and to describe different levels of homelessness. Um, so first, the first two up there, those are pretty interesting. A legal intervention involving an other specified means, unspecified person injured. And then we also have a less than a high school diploma um, other than no GED as well. And that really could be a social determinant of health. If someone has a, a lower level of education or they struggle with reading or they struggle with comprehension, um, perhaps if we give them a prescription that requires titration, uh, they might have a hard time with that. Also, think about patients that are have problems with their home. If they are have to make a choice whether they're going to fill that $800 Trulicity prescription or they're going to pay their rent this month um, and they got, or they would be homeless, I guess that would be a social determinant of health. It causes a risk. It poses a risk. Um, and we have all these codes now to really describe somebody's housing instability to very specific so again, there are some more codes there. Um, the last code on this slide is the Encounter for Immunization Safety Counseling. Again, we talked about that in the guideline, that there was a guideline for that. And I just wanted to remind you that there's those code also's, an encounter for the immunization, and code also, the encounter was not carried out. The immunization was not carried out. Also, you should not be reporting the Z7185, the Immunization Safety Council, with the Z7184, Counseling for Related Travel. Um, again, 
Two more slides, guys. A couple of things that I wanted to talk about here. Allergy to mammalian meats. So it is possible that you can get an allergy to beef, lamb, pork, and red meats. That would be a tragedy. Um, there's also new codes for a personal history of suicidal behavior or a personal history of non-suicidal self-harm. So maybe people that that had a problem with cutting and they don't cut anymore. Um, and there's some guidelines regarding that as well. So please take the time to look at the guidelines. Here are those new code, that new code that we talked about in the guideline for post-COVID or long COVID or long haul COVID as, as it's been referred to. And there are some notes there that you should see that are in the tabular section. So um, this is this code establishes a link with COVID-19. It's COVID-19 specific that uh, it should not be used when a patient still has active COVID-19. Um, these again are, are just reiterating things from the guideline there. However, an exception can be made if you have a had a previous COVID, you have a residual effect, and uh, now you have a new COVID infection that those should be reported. This is a post-COVID sequela code right? So this is for a new condition that's related to an old condition or uh, a condition from a, that we previously had that is extended. Um, and there are some code firsts there that they did talk about in the guidelines. So code those specific related COVID-19s, the uh, chronic respiratory failure, loss of smell, loss of taste, the uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. That's a new code that came in January 2021 pulmonary embolisms, pulmonary fibrosis. And uh, again, another guide there that says if the patient has resolved all of their COVID-19 signs, symptoms, et cetera, that we should start using the Z86.16, which is a new January 2021 code. Everything today came to you from the new guidelines, and you can find those guidelines either on CMS or you can find those guidelines on uh, the CDC website. So, boy, I'm so sorry that I took a little bit of extra time from you this morning, but I rest assured it was with good intent so that we could have a chat about those things. Um, please make sure that you like us on Facebook, uh, not Facebook, uh, LinkedIn Live. It's our first LinkedIn Live today, guys. So make sure that you're liking and commenting and, and looking forward towards the next um episode that we'll have. The next episode is October the 27th, 28th. Uh, Lexi, 27th, 28th? Yeah, one of those two days. Keep an eye out, guys. <laughs> also, I want you to make sure that you are looking at the subscribing to our YouTube page. Um, Lexi, my, my producer here, she has let me know that we have a lot of questions today. I, I don't want to take your time and intrude upon your time. Um, I think what I'll probably do is take these questions, answer them out, and then add them to the YouTube channel. So if you'd left me a question, please make sure that you subscribe to the YouTube channel and uh, that way you'll get a notification as soon as I upload the answer to those questions. If you think of a question after the fact, you're like, darn, Christine, you went so fast this morning that I've got like 30 questions in my pocket. Please, please feel free to reach out to me. There's my email, chall at Sterling Global Solutions. I would love to hear from you. Um, you know, maybe we can answer that. Also, lastly, 
this is an excellent time for you to read the guidelines. So if you haven't done it in a while, guys, uh, we have a, a long, we have a weekend coming up. Let's, let's sit down this weekend, take a look at those guidelines, make a little note. What do they mean to me from a coding perspective and, and what can I do as a coder and what can't I do from a coder? So perspective. So uh, take a look at those guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so glad to be back. I will see you again for the next episode. Um, again, if you have any other topics that you would like to hear, please feel free to reach out on social media, do a shout out. Hey, Christine, how about let's talk about bubonic plague? No, I'm just kidding. Whatever seems to float your boat. So thanks so much, guys. Have a fabulous Thursday. I will see you on the 28th. Take care.